Hi, everybody. It's Bean. Welcome to an all new Great Moments in Weed History. This is truly a very special episode for me because I am going to be deep diving into the modern history of cannabis cultivation with one of my earliest weed mentors, Jorge Cervantes, as he's known to legions of ganja growers and enthusiasts around the world. Well, he first started cultivating cannabis way back in the 1970s. In 1983, he self-published his first book, Indoor Marijuana Horticulture, a true game changer. And in the 40 years since, he has gone on to sell millions of copies of his authoritative grow guides. I first met Jorge in the early 2000s when I was an editor at High Times. Yes, say it with me, back when High Times was cool. You know, the good old days when we were worried about the DEA, not the SEC. And if you don't get that joke, just hit pause and Google it. Anyway, Jorge and I collaborated on a series of how-to cultivation videos, which sold a ton of copies and also got millions of pirated views on YouTube. You know, maybe if you learned how to grow weed from watching that DVD on YouTube and you didn't pay for it, you might want to kick into the Patreon of this show so I can get a little little taste on the back end. More on that later, but you can go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com right now. Anyway, uh, without being immodest, I can say that those DVDs Jorge and I collaborated on were really the first truly comprehensive how to grow weed videos ever professionally produced, which helped spread information about cultivating high quality cannabis around the world. That's something I'm really proud of as a truly subversive act. And directing those videos also stands out as a personal highlight uh, and, and perhaps the most fun I've ever really had on a job. Filming in Vancouver, Canada, and then on a weed tour of Spain, we captured on camera everything you ever really wanted to know about growing cannabis, but were afraid to ask. Whether cultivated indoors or outdoors, hydroponically or in soil, cannabis requires light, air, water, nutrients, a growing medium, and heat to manufacture food and to grow. For optimum growth, the light must be of the proper spectrum, intensity, and duration. Air must be warm, arid, and rich in carbon dioxide. Water must be abundant, but not excessive. And the growing medium must contain the proper levels of nutrients. In this DVD, Relying on my decades of experience, both as a writer and grower, I'll teach you how to manage these processes and keep your garden productive, efficient, and green. On a more personal level, while shooting those videos, we met dozens of underground growers and breeders who all welcomed us into their homes and gardens uh, back at a time when that just really did not happen. We only got that kind of access because of the decades of goodwill Jorge had built up by being not just a source of vital information, but also a kind and humble servant of the plant and just a very 
chill dude who everybody <laughs> who loves weed rightly loves. On one garden visit in Vancouver, a couple of legendary BC growers showed us a dog-eared, photocopied version of Jorge's book that had been passed around by the local weed community since his actual books, and this is true, were officially banned back then in Canada and could not be sold in any store. Canada, of course, now one of the few nations to have legalized weed. Meanwhile, another grower in Spain, uh, as we were touring their home and garden, introduced Jorge to his children as, quote, a kind of folk hero, uh, which made us all laugh at the time. But the more I think about it, it's really kind of true. As we discuss in this episode, there'd have been no weed movement without weed, and there'd have been no weed without all of the outlaw growers who defied an unjust law. And let me just add that there would have been a lot, lot, lot less good weed around without Jorge. Speaking of good weed, that is but one of the many things I will spend your hard-earned dollars on should you choose to send that green energy my way by supporting this podcast on Patreon. You can go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com for all the information and to find out about all the bonuses you'll get by signing up, including the video version of this podcast. You will get a secret sesh every other weed on every other weedness day. So this is still a weedly podcast, uh, but half of those episodes are for Patreon subscribers only. I <laughs> may uh, spend a little bit of that money on weed for research purposes, but I can assure you it goes into uh, much more boring things like hosting and, uh, you know, try <laughs> trying to keep myself fed. Uh, so if you can find it in your heart and in your stash and in your pocket, please go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You can throw in as little as a dollar. You can put five on it. And for just a little bit more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, and I'll mail it right to your door, uh, all at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And uh, yeah, let me just uh, throw this out there as well. Uh, picture me holding up a sign that says, will work for weed. No, I don't want to get paid in weed. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how else to put it. I am uh, out here on Maine uh, looking for some new opportunities, some new ways uh, to bring in some income. So if you know of an opportunity, something that involves writing, producing audio, editing and producing video, or what have you, uh, get in touch. <laughs> Info at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Also, quick shout out to all the harvest crews out there getting high on history with us, whether you're chopping those plants down, whether you're hanging those branches to dry, whether you're trimming off all those little tiny fan leaves right now. Uh, we, the cannabis smokers of the world, salute you. And if you are, you know, a member of a trim crew, why don't you suggest everybody uh, listen to some great moments in weed history after lunch while you snip those buds? Now, back to Jorge. On top of everything else, 
This week marked his 70th birthday, so I am extra happy to share this interview with you right now. Jorge continues to travel the world, writing articles, shooting videos, meeting with growers, sampling harvest, and generously sharing the weed wisdom he's accumulated over many years and countless seshes. His latest book is the absolutely authoritative The Cannabis Encyclopedia, which sits on my shelf in a place of high honor, let me tell you. And you can find Jorge's latest videos on his YouTube channel and on his Instagram. But if you really want to get to know this legendary grower, this guide to great cannabis, well, I advise you to simply sit back and settle in for this interview because we follow his weed journey from its first sprouting to the mature flowers of today. But wait, what I'm hearing is that you, yes, you, dear listener, I am telepathically being informed that you are not as lit as you would like to be for this candid cannabis-infused conversation with a true legend of the plant, and you don't know how to proceed, well, let me tell you, it's simple. All you have to do is hit pause. And you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to puff on a podtone and much love to the podtones crew uh, as I am about to do whatever it takes to get you where you want to be. All you have to do is then hit unpause because when you are ready, I can guarantee you that we will all be ready for another great moment in weed history. When did uh, when did cannabis come into your life? In Ontario, Oregon, in uh, in high school, actually, we got a lecture from the uh, gosh the PE teacher about a guy he knew in the military in the Navy, and he used to smoke marijuana. And then uh, that wasn't strong enough for him, so he moved to heroin. And when he couldn't get enough heroin, he got angry, so he got a hold of a gun and shot a longshoreman. And that's what'll happen if you smoke marijuana. And I thought, really? <laughs> and I thought it was a crazy story, and everybody was smoking it, and I didn't see them shooting anybody or doing heroin. So I started smoking it when I was a junior in high school. I went to university in Spain, and we have Moroccan over there. Moroccan hash? Moroccan hash, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Moroccan hash. They have a placa, they call it. It's a big plate, and that's usually 100 grams, and you can get zero, zero. That's the top quality. But for me, I like the culero. The culero is uh, butt hash, <laughs> and it's about uh, 10 grams. They call them eggs or, or bellotas. Uh, bellota is uh, acorn. And somebody, a guy my size, I weigh 170 pounds, and I'm 5'9". A guy my size can, can swallow a kilo of these bellotas, the butt hash, and then... <laughs> and then um, put another 200 grams up the rectum. 
and that's how they smuggle it over. Yeah, yeah, and then they poop it out because that's why they call it butt hash. But it's usually the top grade possible. They wrap it in cellophane. Well, I wouldn't want to put uh, low-grade hash on my ass. <laughs> no, wouldn't that be embarrassing? <laughs> Have, like, really bad, get popped with really bad hash? It'd be horrible. It'd be so <laughs> terrible. And certainly uncomfortable. Right oh, now. gosh. Oh, it's uncomfortable to begin with. It takes two days in a bathtub to get rid of that stuff. <laughs> Wow, so you, you, you got a hold of some butt hash. Yeah, yeah. And what happened? Oh, we smoked it. It was great. It was great. I met these guys from California, and they were just hardcore stoners, you know. And we got some. We scored it. Well, I didn't score it. They had it. And we smoked. Oh, yeah, that, I hung out with those guys for about a week. And so at the time, there was not much being grown within Spain. No. But it was the history and the legacy of, uh, what, the Moors coming into Spain, creating that, uh, that route for, for hash to come right. as well. Right. But really, the, the, the hash trade didn't really get big until the, the hippie movement in the 60s. They always had it in the Rift Mountains in, in Morocco. But, man, that just made it explode. And it's just going wild now. Yeah. Okay. So you're like you're like a lot of college students. You're uh, experimenting with it, finding that the experiments are successful, and continuing <laughs> to experiment. At what point did you start to say this is important to me? This is more than a hobby, more than an interest. This is something I'm really oriented towards. I'd say the first time I smoked it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I was just. I, I, I'm a firm believer in this. See, you know, we've got the CB1 and CB2 receptors. And I'm a firm believer that some people just do not produce enough cannabinoids in their body and they need more. Why is there a consistent number of stoners, so to speak, or cannabis consumers across this entire civilization? You know, income isn't important. Uh, social status isn't important. They all have the same characteristics. Where did your interest in cultivation come into it and, and your interest oh. as a writer later? What, how, did, how did it move from something personal to something you started to investigate and really look okay. into? Um, well, later, one of the things, I, I also went to university in Mexico, and that's where we, I really got into it. Because like, I was there, the second day I was there, I bought a kilo. <laughs> so this is after after Spain. After Spain, yeah. Let's pick it up in Mexico. You, you arrive, how do you, how do you uh, obtain this kilo? Well, I get there, and then I I'm, I'm don't know where else to go, so I'm in the dorms. And then we get this lecture about, you know, uh, don't smoke any cannabis, you're going to go to jail, you'll never get out. All I mean, just draconian, really hardcore stuff. And this guy, smart-ass guy, walks through and he goes, well, I'm going to go out and smoke a joint. <laughs> and he walks out, and I thought, Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and about half the room left behind him. <laughs> I was right behind him. I, I was like right in step. It was a good idea. About what year in Mexico and, and what was the quality of this kilo? Actually, the, the, the quality of the kilo, that kilo was, was not as good as the second kilo I bought or the third. But <laughs> they were pretty darn good, you know. I mean, they had um, seeds in them, but it doesn't take you long to make friends with the biggest dealer you can find, my buddy Giovanni. I can say his name now, it's okay, because he's already done his time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, with Giovanni, uh, I'd hang out with him. Then we started getting into, uh, I lived in the uh, Cholula, or close to Puebla, and it's, they, had the, they have the Popocatipetl, the, the volcano there. 
and they would grow cannabis up above the tree line and the cold would make it turn purple. So they called it uh, Popo Blue. Yeah, Azul de Popo. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And that was really, really good. And oh, yeah, and it was also Cincinnati. And we didn't have Cincinnati in the United States then. Mexicans are pretty smart, they keep it all for themselves. They didn't have enough to ship north. <laughs> and and Cincinnati means what? Oh, Cincinnati means uh, without seeds. It's in Spanish. And you know, you have a female plant and a male plant, it's dioecious. And you want to pull out the male plant uh, when it designates after about two months, you can see the little. Uh, male flowers, you want to pull those out because they don't produce as much, um, well, they, a lower cannabinoid profile than, than the females. And the females, if you don't pollinate them, they continue to grow and grow and grow and produce more resins that's full of cannabinoids. They're, they're producing this resin uh, partially to attract the pollen of a male. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of reasons they produce pollen, but yeah, that's, that could be one of them. So, Male plants don't get you high. Yeah, get, get rid, rid of, of those and get just grow a beautiful uh, field of females. And this was so. This was just being sort of developed in Mexico. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was already going okay, but it was pretty rough because basically they'd have uh, campesinos or or people in the country growing, and then those guys would sell. Back then, they were selling. It was about three to five dollars a kilo to the bigger guys, the mid-level dealers that we would buy from. We were buying, depends on how much you buy, but usually about $25 US uh, a kilo. And at this point, you're still uh, an enthusiastic consumer of cannabis, oh, but yeah. we haven't moved into, you haven't started growing it or? No, no, but when I came back, I came back and uh, graduated from Portland State University. That's where my parents were living. So I graduated there and then left and bought a garden business with a, a good friend of mine, Chilean guy, and uh, in Santa Barbara. And we owned that for, what, two years? And I grew in San Isidro Canyon during that time. This was your first attempt to grow cannabis? Yeah, or first it, big attempt. I'd grown attempt. small crops before, uh, half a dozen plants, but there's a couple hundred plants. Couple hundred plants, yeah. and so <laughs> how much thought and planning, and you know, did, did you see this as a major undertaking, or did one thing lead to another? In a no, way? it was a major undertaking. I planned it out meticulously. I, I had to, had to walk about I don't know three miles, four miles in. I had to have a water source. I had to have a pump. I had to carry a pump, a three three horsepower motor up there. I had to carry long. Uh, the 20-foot sections of PVC pipe, I broke into 10-foot sections and carried like a couple hundred feet of hose up there. So it was a heck of, heck of a lot of work. And then, um, yeah, I harvested it, and I was uh, fortunate enough to harvest earlier, so I got a better price for my cannabis than anybody else. And where, how did you, how did you learn this trade? What, what, what guides were you using? Uh, there, there wasn't much around back then, actually. They, they didn't even really have a clear distinction between male and female plants back then. Uh, the only guy that was around was Mel, Mel Frank's, uh, Ed Rosenthal's, uh, uh, marijuana growers guy. And that, that was really, really a, a great book. But see, I grew up gardening. Ever since I was a little kid, I was fascinated with plants, you know. 
And then we had the garden business. I knew all about the climate there. And um, I read a lot, you know, and talk to everybody. So, you know, you know all the plants, you know, what the soil's like. It's, it's not that hard. And about what year is this? 78, 70, 77, 78, and 79. So where did you get the plants? That were, that were they seeds? Were they cut? Yeah, I just got them out of bags of Mexican dope that I'd been smoking. So it was bag seed, and it wasn't that great compared to today's standards. And it was all uh, heavy sativa. And uh, I got fortunate that they were early. You know, they were about uh, three to four weeks earlier than most other plants. So that was great, even though there was sativa, they got to be pretty good sized plants, even though they didn't get quite enough water. Um, it was harsh growing conditions. But I, gosh, I harvested, I don't know, 20, 30 pounds out of that. That was a heck of a lot of canvas back then. It was a lot of money because that was the year the price went from $800 a pound to $1,200 a pound. And that was a lot of money in, in 1978, 79. Yeah. And, uh, one-man operation? Did you have to put a team of people together? No, one-man operation, mm-hmm. because otherwise the security was too much. Of course, we had pot growing all around. the. We had it growing in the basement. We had it growing in the backyard. We had it growing in the greenhouse in the backyard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was the, All the ashtrays in the cars were full of roaches. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so you were... Uh... <laughs> Maybe in need of your own later advice when <laughs> yeah. it comes to security. So. Well, I was a buffoon, young and stupid. <laughs> but it was fun. Well, if we don't start things when we're young and stupid, we seldom start them. You harvest this crop, it's, it sounds like it was a success. And Oh, uh, yeah. And where where do we go from here? Well, I took it, um, I took it down to L.A. a couple hours away and, and moved everything. With this guy that had a tracheotomy, and he already smoked a lot. He put his cigarettes in his throat and smoked them. He could move a lot of dope, though, I'll tell you. Uh, anyway, yeah, he was, where was he, Mike something? He was, I don't know if his last name was correct, but. We don't really need to get yeah. too, too <laughs> well, much it doesn't with matter list. right now, it's, you know. <laughs> Not to you, maybe to Mike. <laughs> no, that's a long time ago. Seven years, that's all they got. I know, my, I know about this. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, did you have an? Uh, were you doing that for a while before yeah. the idea of, of yeah. writing came in? Oh yeah, sure. And then, and then I did that for uh, some, a few years, and then, then I uh, for about a year, I was buying and selling cannabis and moving it up and down the coast, and that went really well. But you have a bad deal every once in a while, and you lose all your money. It's either that, or you got to get a gun and go get it, and that's that's no fun. So I didn't want to do that. So anyway, I did pretty well dealing after, you know, for, for that time. Did you ever contemplate going that other route and saying, well, I'll, maybe I do need to protect myself, maybe, or, or did no. you say, I'm, I'm no. not willing to? No, man, I, I've had, I've, I've had my, several friends murdered and they're dead now. They're not coming back. I know people that have m- murdered other people. They're scary people to be around. They're not healthy people. I don't want to. I know people that have killed other people in self-defense. They think about it every day. I don't want to be there. It's not good either way. It's not my life. It's bad. And, and, and the people that you were dealing with, by and large, did they share that same attitude? Was it a sort of gentlemanly 
pursuit in its way. Yeah. Overall, but there were still guns involved. I just stayed away from anything that smelled like a gun. You know, because, see, what the gun does is it gives a person intimidating power. And you don't go off of intellect or uh, you don't make decisions based on intellect or common sense. You base it on intimidation. I don't want to hang out with any of those guys. They're no fun. You know, I've been around them. I know what it's like. It's no fun. (laughs) You know, the DEA is founded in 73, the closing of the border to pot coming in from Mexico and and Colombia and these other places is what created a market for guys like you to grow it in the United States. Oh, yeah. How did the idea of writing about cannabis oh, oh, okay. come in? Okay, actually, that came back. I have to backtrack a little bit. That came back uh, in, uh, uh, God, I remember buying the Grower's Guide when I was in Santa Barbara and been quite happy. And then after I went dealing for some years, or I mean, well, grow grew and then dealt for a little bit, uh, I went to South America for a year and um, came back. And when I came back, I mean, I had no marketable skills other than growing dope. <laughs> I mean, that was it. So I started growing again. You, you had uh, planted yourself into a corner. Plant, yes, I had planted myself into a corner. I was, you know, it was a pretty big corner and I was pretty good at it. <laughs> so so anyway, after that, um, I looked around and saw, geez, oh, there's a lot of really bad information out there. That was uh, 82 81, 82, 83. 83 is when the indoor marijuana horticulture came out. And that's right when indoor growing started to become big. It started in Seattle, moved to Portland, and then south. Oh, yeah, and then in BC, Canada. And I saw a lot of bad information, and I'm, you know, relatively literate. So I figured, hey, I could give good information, and these guys wouldn't be able to lie to everybody and make money at it. So... I thought there was a business there. Nobody else did. So I had to print the book myself. No publisher would accept it. Uh, do you think that they they rejected it because they didn't think it would sell or because of the uh, nature of, of the book? They rejected it because they didn't think it would sell. They said everything that's been written about marijuana has been written so far. And that was the biggest publisher and or press at the time. It was uh, Sebastian Orfali that ran it, and I remember talking on the phone with Carlene Schnabel. <laughs> Do not, you know, some things you remember. I've got a horrid memory for names. <laughs> every, every, uh, every writer has a file of rejection slips, whether it's yes. literal or figurative. I just don't. I don't know. It's just in my brain. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't want to skip ahead, but uh, <laughs> I think they lost out on a few uh, on a few dollars in that in that in that refusing the book. So they uh, called me several times. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. So yeah. so and just to, to pick up on the shift, then you know we talked about the shift from importing cannabis from uh, traditional places of origin like mm-hmm. Mexico. And the DEA starts to crack down on the border, so it moves into the U.S., and then they start to look for people's outdoor plants and real big resources into that. And that uh, 
is what pushes people indoors, correct? Yes, exactly, exactly. It all has a lot to do with technology as well, because the, the HID lights until like 1972 for high intensity discharge lights, there was only mercury vapor lights. In 72, the high pressure sodium lamp came out, and a few years later, came, the uh, metal halide lamp came out. So none of that technology existed before. And by the early 80s, people had discovered it and started growing marijuana. So it wasn't, it. those lights weren't designed oh, for growing no, marijuana? No, no, not at all. They were designed for street lights and retrofit and everything. Heck, the first one I saw was in Laytonville, California in the late, in the, yeah, late 70s. And that's when I was doing business up there. We went out into a shed and there was a halide light, thousand water in the ceiling. Like, you know, like you'd, you'd have a ceiling mounted uh, incandescent lamp. Well, that's what was that metal halide. And then there was a plant, one plant planted in the ground. And they're about eight feet apart. <laughs> and the guy said, Michael, yeah, Mike, he said, he said, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> but they just didn't know to put them closer together. That was just a few simple things. I thought it was crazy. And then the guys in Seattle were growing quite a bit. It started and I read about that. And then it, come, it came to Portland. And that's when I go, God, this is a great deal. And then I met a few people that were really into it. <laughs> yeah. And so you see, you know, here's this new style of growing, and there's a lot of misinformation. Um, how did you put the book together? Well, the, it was pretty interesting. I made a, a, an instrument, is what it's called, a survey research instrument, uh, 10 questions. And I went and made up little flyers of five and a half, eight and a half flyers and with these 10 questions on them and passed them out and asked people to uh, fill them out. I got about a 5% response rate <laughs> on that. And most of them within that five, maybe 40, 50% of the questions were answered, you know? So ultimately I had to go out and interview people one at a time and nobody trusted me. They thought I was a narc, you know, I mean, why do you care about all this stuff? And then, I learned when I gave ask questions, I learned to give information first. So they felt comfortable. They learned something from me. I learned something from them. I talked to about 150 people. It took quite several months to do that. The brilliance of that, that I didn't realize at the time, was I learned what people wanted to know. If I know what they want to know, then you can give it to them. It's, it might be hard to find. But I looked very hard and I found it and gave them just good, simple, straight, clean information. That's all I've ever done. No big stories, nothing, you know, use the English language properly. Do not mislead anybody and just show them, keep them, keep them and, and help them be successful. That's it. And so you compile, you compile the book and it's, it's, uh, uh, reject, we've already oh, yeah. named names, it's rejected. It's rejected. Yeah. And, and so what, I'm in business. Andorra's out of business. <laughs> <laughs> so put that in your put that in your pipe and smoke it. If you have anything to put in your pipe, and, and so so I'll give him some dope. Don't worry. <laughs> was, was there a was there <laughs> was there a uh, was there a point at which you you thought of giving up, or were you you were oh, yeah. committed to? Hell yes, I got scared as hell a few times. During Green Merchant, when they uh, they raided 42 different stores in the United States on the same day, within an hour of 
uh, it was a total coordinated raid. And, and what day was that? It was in October of 1989. The narcs were all over my store. I didn't get, I didn't get arrested, but I had three different clients come in and say that they had gotten arrested with growing and they tried to get, they told them they would get off if they rolled over on me. And none of those guys did, three of them. Wow. And this was, you were running a garden supply store. Yeah, I was, I had a garden center. Yeah. 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 A garden center. And I mean, I know who the narcs were. I know all those guys. I think back, you think of the conversations. Yeah. And it was real spooky. I went out of business. I, I closed the store down. Everybody I knew had been popped, you know, and I'd helped do a lot of stuff that was, well, the government calls that stuff illegal. And I don't, feel it's illegal but i'd done a lot of things that you never know what people know they didn't know nearly as much as i thought they did but i just took it easy for three years is this before the book comes out or this is after the after book? i'd already had two editions of the book okay so let's go back a little bit to putting out the first edition you decide okay. you have to put it out yourself oh yeah yeah and that was 1983 when it came out i had to geez i had a k-pro 2 printer or a uh, computer i had to learn all about typesetting and all this technical stuff so i was just terrible at had to go make galley text and stuff and then paste it in and then i made a deal because i had no money you're out of money by then nobody everybody thinks you're crazy and a loser you know they think something's wrong with you and god that was the hard part you know to keep a strong feeling and then so i made a deal with the local Instaprint guy. And I went in at night and on the Multilist 1250 press printed thousands of copies of this book. The first one, it was eight and a half by, or five and a half, eight and a half saddle stitch. That means it's stapled 96 pages. It sold 6,000 copies the first year. How? How did, how did, how I did went you get the word sold, out? I went out and sold them personally. And then I got distributors. I had to do everything had to finance everything, pay all of the distribution. Well, I'd have to give them the books and they wouldn't pay me until after they were sold. It took months. But I made it through the first year. By the second year, I had tripled the size of the book and uh, gone to a real printer, you know, where I could just job it out. That book sold a lot better. And I could I raised the price. It was like twelve ninety five, I think. It was the standard price for the time. And yeah, that book did really well. And then I got it published in, in the Netherlands in Dutch. So all the Dutch guys know me. I mean, I'm the first decent Dutch book. I got it published in Germany. And yeah, Germany was next. And then later other, other countries. But that didn't come until a little later. And so take me on those early. You've got that first edition. It, it must have looked and felt a little handmade, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. on a machine. And so what was your, who were you selling it to? Were you selling it to grower, growers you know, going to other gardening mm. stores? No, I would go, no, none of the gardening stores would carry it because they were afraid to because it was uh, promoted people to break federal law and state law then too. But uh, what I did was uh, I went around to different bookstores uh, head shops, head shops could sell it because the law was not so strict back then. <laughs> and I remember going in and saying, I've got this new book and give a little sales pitch and they go, yeah, hmm. Well, you can put them over on the shelf and see what they do. 
Not many of these people read, you know. Then having pictures aren't very good. Here, you know, I'll put it there. I mean, I got half-baked responses, very little respect from anybody or anything. And then they'd be calling me back and say, hey, look, this thing moved. Uh, bring over another dozen. And they started moving. Then I called Homestead Books. And then I started writing for High Times, actually. Uh, and that helped immensely. I wrote, got a couple dozen articles for them over the next few years. Articles for ads. That's what it was. And it helped immensely. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of work and a lot of people just saying no and thinking, you know, something's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, the two are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I know you a long time. <laughs> so, uh, when was the sense? When was this? When was your sense like? Okay, this is this is working. Like it's it's still hard work. It's still the, a- the second edition. It was real real clear because I'd given the the only other book available then was How to Grow the Finest Marijuana Indoors by Murphy Stevens. And it was okay, but it was light. It didn't have as much good, clean information. It looked better than my book, but my book had better information. And gosh, uh, it was just the right book at the right time. And who was the book credited to? Was it? Was it? Oh, Jorge Cervantes. <laughs> and, and where does Jorge Cervantes come <laughs> that's into this? Interesting. Okay, that's my uh, pen name. Uh, and uh, Jorge, uh, Cervantes is my wife's last name. And also, he's, uh, Miguel de Cervantes has been a, always a favorite author of mine. Uh, you know, I mean, he was a great guy, a uh, big personality. And so I had to come up with a pin name because if I didn't, um, I couldn't cross any borders easily and I'd be looked at much more closely. And I was crossing, I was going to Europe regularly, uh, Netherlands and Spain both regularly. And then, uh, man, you just don't want your name on that document. Uh, I sat in the little room a bunch of times at the border. And they ask you questions, and you sit there. They take all your rights and paperwork, and you sit there. They ask you the questions again. They come back and ask you again. And then they're rude when they tell you to, you can go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like people that are rude. <laughs> it doesn't seem like you love authority all that much. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> if they're nice, it's fine. Did you consider yourself a, 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 a sort of a subversive writer in a certain way? or? Oh, yeah. I felt like I had a mission. Number one, to give good information. And number two, to get cannabis legal. You know, And I figured the more you, people that grew, the better chance it had to be legal. Those were, that, I mean, I really did have a mission. And it was very important to me. You know, we're, we're, we're sitting here in California. It's, it's, it's been kind of legal for a long time and it's fully legal now. And, you know, a lot of people's efforts combined to make that happen. But, uh, it's important that we recognize that the growers and the underground and the people who in an honorable way broke those laws. Oh, yeah. We would not have legalized cannabis without that underground. It's so cool, you know, because like yesterday I was talking to two guys. I, I spoke yesterday at the, the Emerald Cup and two guys came up afterwards. I go, yeah, I know some of you guys spent some time in the joint, you know. And one guy comes up and he goes, God, he had no wrinkles in his face or anything. He said, I spent 18 years for growing. 
Another guy spent 13 and a half. These guys are still growing. Can't stop them. And I think that's a big part of how we won. Yeah. Um, and certainly if you think of all the people who, um, you know, when the government lies so much about something. Oh, God, without, it's horrid. Without that ability to directly experience it. Mm. You know, no, no growers, no cannabis. No cannabis, no cannabis movement. Um, right, right. As much as we were right about everything on paper, without that direct experience of cannabis, I don't see how so many people would be motivated to work on this for so long. Oh, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened because, uh, number one, well, we talked about earlier that the CB1 and CB2 receptors, and that I believe that people just don't produce enough cannabinoids, and they need, they need it. I mean, they need cannabis. Uh, the other thing is, gosh, all of these guys, they're not coming for us. Don't worry. <laughs> this is outside. Do not panic. Okay? They're, not, they're also not, if you're living How many in, of them are there? If you're, a <laughs> Look out there. No, he's going by. Good. If you're listening, also, if you're listening to this in uh, Oklahoma or something, they're not coming for you. Yeah, it's on the it's on the recording. Hit pause on the recording, and the It'll sirens go. will stop. It'll go away soon. Well, let's talk about. Uh, is there also is is Jorge uh, an alter ego or or a? Um, do you see him as both part and separate of yourself? Yeah, I have to. I look at myself more as a third person and Jorge's manager. It's easier that way because then there's Jorge over here. And it's hard to separate yourself because I have to admit, my ego gets wrapped up in it. And it's it's easy to do. I work hard not to let it get too wrapped up. Because, you know, I mean, I, I sold over a million books. And I helped a good big part of the world become better cannabis growers, you know? Well, yeah, I've had the... I've had the uh... The pleasure of traveling with you when we did our DVDs together and at different events and and people come up and and I mean I'll say it because I know you're too humble but uh, you put my kids through college I had I had a rough time in my life I was unemployed and you helped me get back on my feet and I mean that's yeah. no small thing in somebody's life and and so many people Are uh, you, I'm able to keep my farm. My kids have a better life. That's big stuff. How would you describe to people, you know, I think anybody who's listening to this, we don't have to convince them pot's a good thing. Or that, <laughs> or that people who smoke pot are a good thing. But for instance, smoke I... Smoke it, you'll go to hell. <laughs> it's not nearly as exciting as it was before because it's becoming legal. And yeah. that's like, uh, it takes a little thrill out of it. But, you know, you got to live with what you got. <laughs> Well, let's let's uh, let's talk yeah. about that because <laughs> each of us and 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 you certainly uh, have had have been through this transition, and of course, it's still transitioning. Yeah. And of course, I, I make a point in almost every one of these podcasts. You know, if you are in uh, Colorado, it's it's legal and wonderful, and if you cross that border into Nebraska, it's still <laughs> your ass. <laughs> um, so we're not post-prohibition. We're just no. entering that world. But yeah. but as things change, how do you feel about uh, the mainstreaming of pot or the idea that it might be the outlaw aspect of it may go away? It's going to take years for the outlaw aspect to completely go away because the drug wars lasted for 
more than 70 years. Um, so people just don't want to give up a mindset. So yeah, that's going to take a long time. The most important thing in this new era we're, we're moving into is to just end these arrests. But I think one thing a lot of people worry about is as we move cannabis out of the drug war, that we will lose some of the values around the plant and around the culture, the idea that we are skeptical of authority because they've fucked with us so much. And the idea that we have this very close-knit community that shares um, ideas of inclusion and ideas of, you know, hey, if you're going to marginalize us and push us into a corner, we're going to make it a great little corner, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's always been a part of this, of this, not just people who smoke pot, but the community of people who right. really feel a deep connection. Right. Um, and do you see that changing or do you think we can maintain, we can end this prohibition, but still maintain that wonderful outlaw, inclusive culture that we've that we've developed as a response. Boy, I I don't know. I mean, I've I've seen too much. I'm a bit pessimistic in my life. I've seen the changes already. I've seen people with a lot of money really moving in. You're saying the vast majority of growers are are. Um, the equivalent of very small businesses or oh, cottage, yeah. even a cottage, cottage, industry. cottage industry. Yeah. People don't have, I mean, some people have, you know, more than a hundred plants, but most people don't. They just want to live. They want to have kids. They want to have a nice social life. You know, they just want stability. And they're also not willing as you weren't to, um, to say, I'm going to underpin what I'm doing with violence or the threat of violence. Because no. obviously in the black market, you can't go to the government to protect you. You don't have a contract right. with the guy you're going to sell dope to. So you <laughs> either do two things. You go by your word and your honor. Or you go by your word and your honor, hopefully, and some threat of defense through violence. And and mm. these small farmers that, you know, we've been to dozens of them to film our videos and you have traveled the world for years visiting them. That's what's limiting them from growing is they don't want to take on the risk of arrest as it right. increases, as right. you raise your profile, and they don't want to have so much that they're forced to defend it that way. Right, um, right. And that, to me, those people are the heart of this culture. And, no, it's true. And it's in, very true. That what in your travels? What was the finest cannabis you've 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 come across? And what's the oh, yeah. what's the secret to producing really really fine cannabis? Good cannabis. Yeah. The the biggest the best one I remember for always is uh, uh, Neville or not Neville's Hayes, but but um, Hayes Hayes plant. That was I got over at the seed bank years ago. I remember I went into Amsterdam, and I said, "Neville, give me give me some dope. I want to go in." He goes, "Okay." And we pulled off about a three foot branch off of this uh, haze plant. And he, gosh, I remember you smoke it, and you just get high. You smoke another one, you get higher, and then yeah, the feeling just kept lasting, and it was very soaring. It was wonderful. What role did the Netherlands and Amsterdam play in? Um, maintaining 
cultivation and and spreading cultivation in oh. in that time period. Oh gosh, Amsterdam was a fundamental key. Without Amsterdam and really the Netherlands, but we always think always think it Amsterdam. It's a lot of other places, you know. I mean, big places with with coffee shops and a lot of growing down in Harlem. There's there's tons of growing. Yeah, see, it was the safe place. It'd be like the safe house that all of the quote unquote criminals can go to, and hang out and operate freely without fear. You know, I mean, sure, you had to dodge immigration. I mean, sure, there was little inconveniences, but it wasn't so bad. Yeah, and you could do things openly that there that you couldn't do in any other country. They they could exile themselves or or run from the law. There's a lot of people that you know they they wouldn't be extradited back to the United States. I have quite a few friends like that 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 couldn't come back, and so it's a safe place for them to go, and they could do whatever they wanted, and that was. Wonderful. So we saw a lot of people who were involved in cultivation pretty heavily in the United States and elsewhere. Either they feel the heat coming close, or they simply don't want to live with that threat anymore. They move to uh, the Netherlands, where uh, they're much more protected. And then the next step is they start sending seeds right back to where they came from. And I, I think that's a beautiful story of, of unintended consequences. In a oh, way. yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't stop them, see? Like the guys I said, the, the one that spent 18 years in the slammer and 13 years and a half, and, and another guy, Matt, who spent four years. You can't stop these guys. You know, I mean, like me, I'm, I'm, I don't understand. Why is this illegal? You, you know, if I breathe, I'll keep doing this. There's a big criminal element, you know, people that they'd had quite a few priors. <laughs> they had to leave, you know. I mean, they, well, they can't touch American soil ever again. And then other people that were like me, refugees, I knew if I stayed, I'd, I'd, I'd go to jail. That's all there was to it. Let me run this one by <laughs> you. You tell me if you've heard it. Oh, I've been in the cannabis game a long time. I've been at it almost two years now. Oh <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, that one's one of my favorites, and um, the other one is, smoke this, you'll never, you've never had anything as good as this in your life. This is, it's like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, I had a the guy asked me the other day if I knew what CBD was. <laughs> you know, and this was somebody at a stand, a booth at one of the fairs, yeah. Yeah, it's, no, there's a lot of new people that are, that have, Bigger egos than I could imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I was saying I think this is a great a great uh, place to leave things because I want this show to speak to those new people, and I oh and, yeah, and, and, it, and what I want to do is provide the really authentic and knowledgeable voices from our community. One to educate everyone, two to create this community space, and also maybe to engender a little humility, a little <laughs> idea, because you know these people they're the they're victims of the same propaganda campaign as everybody else. And so it's natural for them to come in and think, well, these are the people I've heard all these bad things about, that they're spaced out and that they're criminals and that they're this and that. So, of course, now that people like me are here, we're going to teach them. And the real thing is what you need to do if you're coming in new to this 
is understand the first thing you need to do is learn. You may have wonderful skills to contribute, whether that's as a business person, or maybe even you're a botanist, or a scientist, or a, a, a venture capitalist, or whatever. Um, your, your skills may be valuable and they may even be needed, but to simply understand that you're walking into a culture and a community and a movement long before it was an industry. Oh, yeah. Um, and that you have a lot more to learn than to teach. Um, no, that, that's so true, you know, because um, you, you see that imperialistic attitude around a lot of times. Uh, like, well, with the business people that come in and think we're going to straighten these hippies out, there's, there's a big friction there because I look at those guys like that and I say, look, buddy, you don't have any balls. I mean, you just have no balls. You know, if, if, if you're riding around on my back because you have no balls. You know stuff I don't, but you have to treat me as an equal because I am. And I'm better at this than you are. You're better at what you do than I am. But we, we, I want to get on with them, but they, they have to um, get on with me too. So there's a lot of openings for a lot of people. It's... You know, they just, like you say, humility is very yeah. important. Yeah, here's a shorthand and a good place to, to wrap things up. Don't, and tell me if you disagree, but don't, don't tell us that your vape pen is going to revolutionize cannabis. <laughs> if, if you've heard those words come out of your mouth, stop. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to take your laughter as, as agreement. And I'm just going to totally. I'm going to, I'm going to thank you, not just on behalf of myself, but on behalf of, of what I'm assuming is a lot of my listeners who, uh, have directly benefited from, from your expertise and your knowledge and your willingness to share it. Uh, thank you well, so much. And, and from me, Jorge, just some of the George, Jorge, and both of you, uh, <laughs> Some of just the best times in my life have been spent uh, hanging out with you, making videos, and and uh, it's been a thrill and an honor. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Jeez, well, that's heady stuff. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.